Welcome back to the Returns Mandatory Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Phelps, a.k.a. Chains. And today, I'm going to have a conversation with Ted. Um, Ted is someone that I sought out after looking at his Peak Bagger profile. He has climbed Aconcagua, um, Rainier twice. He's been in, you know, the highest point in Wyoming and Mexico. He's explored all over Europe. He's just a really interesting guy. Um, we just did a trip a couple weeks ago to Mount Massive on the East Ridge and um, just had a good talk there. Of course, we did it the COVID-19 style, you know, drove separate cars, met at the trailhead and never got within six feet of each other. Um, really not that hard to do in the great outdoors. So, yeah, let's just jump right into the conversation. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Good. I apologize for the uh, lack of structure and... Um, planning <laughs> that I have but um yeah I just wanted to have you on and just kind of pick your brain um you've been involved in hiking a lot longer than I have so um I just feel like it would be a big time positive for the listening community even though it may be small um yeah yeah I'm ha- happy to uh to talk with you and kind of tell you a little bit about stuff I've done and answer your questions Awesome, man. Um, so um, the main the main thing I wanted to talk about really is just the amount of conditioning required to go on something bigger than a 14er because, you know, we're so obsessed with teeners in Colorado because we have so many. But, um, you know, you've done Aconcagua something much much taller um just kind of wondering what what the difference is yeah so um i actually think doing a lot of the colorado 14ers is good conditioning for going outside the u.s um or doing any of the bigger peaks out there um so i mean i kind of started with just doing the 14ers my first big peak in my adult life was actually a gannet peak the high point of wyoming which is um it's glaciated it's a little more technical than than any of the colorado 14ers i probably wasn't quite experienced enough to do it but i did it and i was successful partially just because of uh being very lucky with conditions um but then i kind of started just getting into the 14ers and kind of building up stuff there also just you know i kind of started out with a, a base of um uh, rock climbing and and actually learning how to do waterfall ice climbing um, first in your and then other places outside of uh, Colorado like uh, highlight up in Wyoming or sorry Montana and then uh, South Fork in Wyoming um, you know that kind of stuff if you, if you learn how to do hard stuff on top rope when you get into kind of moderate stuff without a rope or or you know, when you're just tied to a partner, it's not as bad. Um, Aconcagua actually is um, not terribly technical when it comes to climbing. Um, it, for the most part, there's a, a good trail. There's some scree. There's some these ice pinnacles. They call them penitentes. Um, essentially, uh, they're just hardened snow and then the the sun because you're you're pretty far um you're you're at a pretty high latitude closer to the equator than i think colorado is in in relation um just kind of bakes these bakes the snow and it forms these giant ice spikes that you have to kind of go through uh, which are annoying but really not technical um and it really isn't until you get to the last summit day where you're actually doing any real snow climbing and even then, um, it's fairly moderate grade. Um, it's just you're going really slow at altitude. Um, so that's that's the biggest thing with that one there. Um, but yeah, if, you're, if uh, for conditioning, you know, 
one of the things I did was, um, you know, I, I tried to, to, to step up every time, you know, what do I need to learn? You know, what's the next step towards, you know, doing something bigger, better. Um, you know, I, I started climbing 14ers when, in 2012. Uh, I finished them in uh, uh, 2015. And so I, um, after three years of climbing, I uh, tried to figure out what I kind of want to do next. Uh, early in 2016, I went down in to Mexico, and uh, Mexico is a great place to uh, get a taste of some higher altitude. Um, are you familiar with Orizaba? I'm not, actually. Okay. So uh, Pico de Orizaba, it's the highest point in Mexico. It's a, a massive, massive volcano, 18,500 feet or so. Um and I went down there with a friend of mine, Peter, and uh, we climbed that one and another peak that's just over 14.5 called Malinche. Um, and that was a, a good way for me to kind of test out. And actually, I found out some uh, interesting stuff about myself at altitude. Um, you know, the first time I slept about 15,000 feet was on Orizaba. Um, didn't sleep very well, and I didn't really think about that much before then. And uh, I'm glad I kind of had that experience so that, you know, I could figure out how to sleep better at altitude. Um, and also when I got to the summit of Orizaba, I tried to eat something and didn't feel sick till I started trying to chew on it and then got kind of sick for a second and then went away. Uh, found out that I also have appetite issues at high altitude. Um, so, you know, kind of, kind of doing that in like a low risk um, setting is a good way to, condition yourself to the higher altitude stuff. Um, so that's kind of what I did. 2017 is when I did Aconcagua. And um, I don't know, I, I guess, um, do you want me to talk about that trip and kind of lessons learned and stuff? Or Yeah, and also kind of maybe touch on the approach, because I know a lot of 14ers in Colorado, you know, if you've got a four-wheel drive, you can – basically get to a couple within a couple thousand feet of the summit so um i'm guessing aconcagua is a little bit different yeah um i'm not 100 percent sure what what the altitude is where you start but you actually start from a, a paved highway um that runs between um mendoza argentina and santiago chile which santiago is the um, the capital of chile um, and so there's this main highway that kind of goes right over this pass. And you can actually see Aconcagua from that pass on a clear day. Um, I didn't see it when we ended up going on a bus over that later on in our trip. Um, but the, uh, let's see here, it is uh, National Route 7 in Argentina. And uh, I'm just trying to see what the actual altitude is for starting it looks to be about 2,800 meters. So that is about 9,000 feet. So in the okay. summit, the summit is just under 23,000 feet. So it's a good deal. Um, so I, the way I did it, I did not take the standard route in. I did something called the 360 route. Um, I started in a valley that is on the um, – on the eastern side of Aconcagua, starting at a point called Punta de Vaca. Um, and you go about 24 miles in over three days to get to your main base camp area, which is at 14,000 feet. So it's 24, 25 miles just to get to 14,000 feet. Um, so it's, it's a decent hike in. Um, everybody uses mules. So, um, even though I did it unguided, I still had a company bring the mules from Punta de Vaca to, uh, Plaza de Argentina, which is the, um, the main base camp area. Um, they have two checkpoints along the way. They just check your permit, make sure everything's good. You kind of just camp. The second camp is actually really pretty because that's your first chance that you really see Aconcagua and you get to see the side profile of it. Um, it was a perfectly clear day, and I remember seeing it for the first time, and uh, it's massive. <laughs> um, so 
Uh, so, yeah, you, you get in there. So, I mean, there's no way to get in any closer than that um, by road. Um, the standard route, you don't really get any closer by the main highway, but the standard route, it is a little bit shorter. I think it's about 15 miles or so to the base camp. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's much, much more popular. And um, I'd been told that the 360 route was prettier. So I kind of wanted to do that. I also kind of like the challenge of it. Um, so that's kind of why I chose that. Um, so anyways, I, I, I did that route. Um, actually had a friend who I knew who was there on a guided group that got there about a week prior um, ended up actually seeing him a couple times along the route. Uh, he climbed and summited day before uh, my attempt, um, and he did pretty well. Um, he summited. Uh, they had a good weather window on the way up, although they actually got stormed on on the way down back to uh, back to high camp. So uh, uh, it's up there. It's just the weather can be really fickle. So you got to be careful about it. Gotcha. Did you see anybody up there that didn't belong there or were they pretty good about filtering those people out or, you know, denying them access? So um, me and my friend were one of only two groups that I saw that were unguided. So, um, and there's one other pair of guys. They're actually from Colorado. If I remember correctly, I never got their names. Um, but they were actually going to be trying a technical route um, going up the Polish Glacier, which is um, it's a more of a technical snow ice climb. Um, so everybody else was was guided. They had guides. Um, There's definitely a lot of people that did not belong, um, and they got filtered out at 14,000 foot camp. Some actually got filtered out on the way up to 14,000 camp because. Um, you know, they were just not able to deal with the altitude. Um, I actually met a good friend of mine now, his name is Jay, and he was actually part of a guided group that was hiking up at the same time as us. And he was there and part of his guided group, there was two or three Europeans who all got very sick, um, even just at 14,000 foot camp. And these guys are from the Netherlands, which is, you know, just at sea level. Um, So he just kind of, uh, you know, they, they do uh, medical checks when you get to 14,000 foot camp, they take your blood pressure, they take your pulse, they take your pulse oximetry, which is a way of measuring how much oxygen your blood is absorbing. Um, and they pretty much, right. They, they can't really tell you to turn back around, but they'll tell you, Hey, you need to spend a couple more days acclimatizing here or, uh, you know, kind of give you advice on what you're supposed to do. And then, you know, the guides, if you're with a guide, they probably won't let you go up higher if you're exhibiting altitude symptoms or, you know, they don't think that you're going to make it well. Um, You know, people have died up there. Um, I saw three fairly significant uh, instances that required people getting helicoptered while I was on the peak. So, Oh man. Um, and what were they getting lifted for? Um, so the first one was actually, he was uh, one of the guys that was guided, that was with my friend Mike, the guy who was, he was with the guided group, but uh, I knew him prior. Um, he actually came down with haste, uh, went completely unresponsive. They were able to bring him back with a, a drug called dexamethasone, which is a steroid. Um, actually, more recently, um, it was actually used as a, something that was used with COVID um, to help treat some of the symptoms. Um, Interesting. But you, you use that, it snaps you out of it, but it's a temporary effect. So unless you just keep taking it, um, the only true fix is just to get down, but at least gets you coherent enough, brings you back, um, where without it, you're not really functional. Um, on the way down from the uh, summit, uh, I ran into a guy from uh, Tucson who just was kind of wandering by himself, and I really wasn't sure what was going on. Uh, it turned out he had a guide, 
but his guide was below him and there was some clouds. So I didn't see his guide until we got down a little lower, but he was barely crawling down the mountain. Um, turned out after the fact, cause he contacted me, he actually had hape, um, which is high altitude pulmonary edema. Um, essentially you're, uh, you're getting liquid in your lungs where haste, uh, the, what happened to the person who went unresponsive, you're having cerebral edema, too much pressure in your head. Um, so hape, uh, the pulmonary edema, um, there isn't really a good cure for it other than oxygen and getting lower. So he got rest, he got helicoptered off afterwards. I didn't actually see him or the other guy get helicoptered off, but I, I saw them when they were experiencing those symptoms. Um, and I was told afterwards because I was contacted by both of them afterwards. Um, the third incident, which my understanding is they they got down to 17,000 foot camp and they got helicoptered. Um, there was uh, another guided group that had severe frostbite on one of their um, clients' feet to the point where I'm pretty sure they lost toes. Um, you know, it was it was very cold that morning. Um, when we did our summit push um, and you you're pretty much you're in the shade you're in the shadow of the mountain until the last final maybe 800 feet push so it's it's early it's cold um, and you're at high altitude and you're moving really slow um, so you're not really generating a lot of body heat so you know my feet got cold and I had my full double boots and I stay pretty warm. Um, I don't know what kind of boots those guys were wearing. Um, but if they're, you know, they're guided, they might not be boots that belong to them. They might be rented. Um, so, you know, it's kind of that kind of stuff that you got to think about, you know, I'd happily spend a thousand dollars on a pair of boots than have to lose a couple of toes for going up too low, too, uh, too high with not warm enough boots. Oh, absolutely. So, Oof. And now, yeah. did you have any kind of strategy when you got up super high? Like, were you was your mind wanting to get to the top faster? Like, were you trying to, like, throttle yourself to, like, force yourself to go at a certain pace so that you weren't using up too much energy? Or how does that work out? I mean, I've never done anything above 14,000. So, you know, another 9,000 feet seems quite significant. Yeah, Um so my normal pace at the time when I was doing, say, a 14er is about 2,000 to 2,500 feet an hour, depending on how efficient I'm trying to be. Um, you know, maybe dropping off to 1,500 to 1,000 feet an hour if it's not very efficient climbing or, um, you know, I'm just tired, uh, whatever it is. Near the summit of Aconcagua, I was doing 400 feet an hour, and I felt like I was racing. Um it's hard to explain how much you just feel slow, but your body feels like you are running. Um, you know, obviously didn't use any oxygen or any other supplemental, anything to supplement. So, um, you know, it's just me up there. Um, I tried to acclimate fairly well, but I was on a pretty fast schedule. Um, my, I did not my biggest mistake was probably not picking a very good partner. Um, he did not bring enough food, even though we had talked about it extensively. So we actually got on the mountain, got to 14,000 foot camp and realized that he only had about eight days of food left. <laughs> so, um, you know, we ended up having enough food in the end, but that's just because we kind of stepped up everything. We also had a, a weather window kind of closing on us. So it was either we take the, the day that we went for it, or we probably would have had to wait another three to four days before the weather kind of cleared up. Um, the day after we were up there, 80 mile an hour winds, give or take, which would have made it even worse. I mean, when I the day we did it, it was a little cloudy, but for the most part, the wind was low and the weather was pretty calm, so... Now, how heavy were your bags starting off, um, you know, packing enough food for the whole thing? 
Uh, they were heavy. Um, so we, like I said, we did use mules to get to 14,000 foot camp. So we weren't carrying a really big pack, but we did have these kind of green uh, army bags that we used. Um, the idea was that if they got trashed or ripped or whatever, um, we wouldn't really have much to worry about. And then we could also mark them up with our names. So it was really easy to identify which bags were ours. Um, you know, also it was pretty easy to donate them at the end, which um, I can tell you about a little bit, but um, you know, so we got our stuff kind of carried for us, or at least part of our stuff carried for us up to 14,000 foot camp. Um, and then the, the trick is that you do kind of carries between camps. So um, we actually got to 14,000 foot camp kind of midday on the third day and um, went and checked in, did all that sort of stuff. And um, we decided to do a half carry up to uh, the next camp, which was uh, about 16,000 feet. So we, we kind of packed up stuff that we knew we didn't need for that night, like some extra food. Um, you know, we, they had a, a tent that we could kind of use. So we packed our tent up to the next spot. Um, uh, some other, some other stuff. And so we essentially just tried to, you know, anything that we knew we didn't need, um, that night and for the next morning, we brought it all up there. We used one of those big green army bags and kind of stuffed it in there. And luckily my friend, Mike, um, his group who was guided was already actually up there. So we said, Hey Mike, you mind watching this for the day? He's like, sure. Why not? So we actually had somebody to kind of babysit our stuff. Um, so we came back then, then back down to 14,000 foot camp, spent the night. Next day we went up to, um, we did our second carry with the other half of our gear up to, uh, 16,000 foot camp. And then we kind of did the same thing. Um, then we did kind of half carry up to 18,000 foot camp, you know, spent the night at 15, six camp or sorry, 16,000 foot camp. And then the next day carried the rest of the stuff up to 18,000 foot camp. Um, and then we spent two nights at 18,000 foot camp um, carrying to the high camp, which was 19,500 uh, feet. Um, and that's where we did our summit push from, from 19,500. And that's, so that's the last so camp. Just, yep. And so, and again, because I did the, the 360 route, everything had to go over that 19,500 foot saddle, where if you would have done the standard route, because you're going down the same way you're going up, um, you could kind of cash stuff that you don't need at the higher camp at like say the 17,000 foot camp on the standard route, or even one of the lower camps on the standard route, because, um, you know, you just don't have to carry everything over, you know, if you've got trash or, or something like that, that you can, um, effectively cash at one of those lower route, lower camps, you could do that, but doing the, the 360 route, you can't. So you just have to carry everything over. So <laughs> what, what's the summit summit view like um, from 23,000 to 14? Is it comparable? Is it just totally different? Um, well, I actually had clouds on my summit. So, oh, you had clouds? Um, but prior to that, yep. But prior to that, um, you know, I, I did have a really good view of the north to the north, uh, both pretty much from 18,000 foot camp up, up um, you have this great view to the north and there's a couple really big peaks. Um, I think it's the, it's in the top 10, but one of the, uh, the biggest peaks down there um, is, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but it's, I think it's Mercedario, Mercedaro, um, which is another 20, 22,000 foot, 21,000 foot peak that's directly north of you and it's just so massive even though it's it's fairly far away um my friend sean actually went and climbed that a couple of years um after me about a, about a year ago actually and he was talking about being able to see aconcagua and i was telling him how i could see aconcagua i could see mercendario from there um and you can see a couple other high peaks out there in the distance um 
you, you don't really have it where you can look straight down. So it's, but I mean, it's still fairly, it, like the valley's off to the side. They go down to like 10,000 feet. So you're still looking down about 11, 12, but it's not like you're looking straight down 20,000 feet and being able to see the ocean or something. Uh, maybe on a really clear day, you might, but I never got that day. So I gotcha. So what were you talking about still, the um, donating at the end? Oh, so, um, yeah, this is something I kind of learned on the way out. So when you get, we kind of went down through the standard route and you get down to uh, there, the 14,000 foot camp on the standard route is called Plaza de Mulas. Um, and so you get down there and um, all of the, the guides that are there, all Indian guides, um, you know, they're kind of, looking for deals. Um, so, you know, I had one guy who was asking about my crampons, one guy that was asking about my tent, uh, one guy who was asking about, you know, sleeping bag, whatever. They're just trying to see if you, they can get any, you know, buy anything or get anything off of you. Um, so we had a, an extra gas canister or two. Um, one of the guides that we had actually been kind of um, hiking alongside, who was also doing the 360 route, he really liked my tent a lot and I really didn't want to carry the tent out and I'd gotten it at a really good deal. And I knew I could probably get another one at a good deal. So I ended up selling him his t the tent for the same price I bought it for. And I didn't have to carry, you know, my eight pound tent out, um, which was nice. But then also, you know, I donated a couple things. So like I didn't really want to carry the canvas bags out because everything I was putting inside my, uh, you know, inside or strapped to the outside of my big 70 liter pack. And so I just hiked out the 15 miles with, you know, it probably looked like a junk show, but everything I had brought that I still had <laughs> that didn't either get or sold at camp on my back and hiked out, you know, 15 miles. Um, so that, that's what I mean by donating. <laughs> that's awesome. So um, you said you've also done Rainier a couple times. Yeah, I've done Rainier twice, um, both times um, unguided as a private party. Um, first time I did it, um, I did it back in, I think it was 20, let's see here. did back in uh, 2014, I think. So, um, yeah, so I did that with my friend Sean, um, and um, we did the Emmons route, which is um, on the east side of the peak um we had absolutely gorgeous conditions perfect clear weather um snow was in great shape um it was pretty easy to boot up um you know behind everybody else's tracks and there was a couple times that we kind of were trying to skip around people because we were moving faster than a lot of the other groups so it was pretty easy to kind of do a little couple little cutoffs um most of the crevasses were still uh, had snow bridges over them or they're pretty easy to identify. Um, so it actually was, it was a big day, but it was technically a kind of a piece of cake. <laughs> um, the second time I did it was, uh, uh, let's see here, two years later in uh, 2016. And I did that as a small group. Uh, Mike, the same guy I was talking about at Aconcagua, he lives in Seattle. So he uh, met us, came out with us. Um, I have a friend, Martin, who lives down in L.A., who had tried to do Rainier the year before, ended up getting, um, wasn't able to go for it because of the weather. And um, this other guy, Calvin, who I'd been talking with, he had this goal of trying to do all of the 14ers in the U.S. in uh, 75 days. So 75 14ers in 75 days. So I just kind of been casually talking with him. He's like, I kind of want to do Rainier. And I was like, well, you know, you're going to have a lot of issues with this, 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 you know, when are you planning on doing it? I'm trying to advise him a little. He's like, can we just do it together? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, um, so I kind of cobbled everybody together on that one. And we did the, the disappointment cleaver route, which is um, the, the standard one that kind of, is more on the south side of the peak um, instead of the Emmons, which is on the east. And that one, 
you get up to the the main feature, which is the the, the cleaver, uh, this big rock rib that kind of sticks out of uh, the south side of uh, Rainier. And I would never, ever do that route again. The, the, the rock was loose. There's a lot of guided people on there. So there's a lot of bottlenecks where, you know, you're just kind of standing there waiting for people to cross. Um, they actually have ladders across some of the, the crevasses there. It was also a little later in the season. So the, there was a lot less snow coverage. So the crevasses were bigger and the snow bridges were not quite as significant. Um, so, you know, if I had to do it again, I would do it earlier in the season like I did the first time and I'd do the Emmons again like I did the first time. Um, but it was still was successful both times. Um, we had great weather both times and uh, definitely lucked out on that because uh, my friend Mike, since he lives there, he's tried to climb it a bunch of times and um, he's only gotten, I think, two or three summits out of the 10 or 15 times he's gone. So. Wow. So um, there's glacier travel on Rainier, right? Oh yeah. Um, so the both uh, routes on Rainier, you go to a camp. Um, so on the standard route, you have Muir Camp, which is I think at ten thousand feet, um, and then on Emmons route, you have Camp Sherman, which I think is a little lower. I think it's closer to nine thousand feet. Um, Below both of those camps, you have snow fields, but they're not really anything to worry about. It's just snow. So there's no uh, crevasse issue below the camps. Um, and both of those, you can travel up to those camps without having a climbing permit. Um, above those camps, you have to have a climbing permit, which you just kind of have to acknowledge the risks. Um, it also helps pay for search and rescue, stuff like that for the, the park. Um, but above that is where you start getting into crevasse dangers. Um, for, uh, the Emmons route, um, there are some massive, massive crevasses that open up later on in the season. Um, for the deep disappointment cleaver route, um, that is actually kind of a late season route. There's a different route that they'll sometimes take in the early in the season when there's more snow, but once the, uh, the snow bridges are no more. They can't really take that. Um, I forget the name of the route off the top of my head, but um, yeah, you're both routes are going to be going over um, crevasses. They're really, there's one route on the south side, I think, of Rainier that you can do that doesn't involve any crevasse travel, um, but it's not a very popular route because you're on the rock. And um, I'm not sure if you've done any volcanic uh, peaks, but the rock is never good. Um, most times it's very crumbly, um, just kind of, you know, at, at best it's kitty litter and at worst it's just breaking off in your ha hands if you're actually having to climbing stuff steep enough where you have to use your hands. Um, so staying on the snow is actually a good thing, but, you know, you also just want to try to do it when you have good good enough snow coverage. And I've kind of found that out with most of the glaciated peaks that I'd rather do them earlier with more snow coverage than later when you have to deal with the, you know, the, the glacier ice showing underneath or, you know, the, the really cruddy rock that you tend to get underneath the glaciers. I gotcha. Is there any kind of skills test when you're doing uh, about to get onto the glacier? Like, do they, ask if you know how to self-arrest and work ropes, stuff like that, or? Uh, if you did Rainier uh, guided, normally they're going to have some sort of requirements. Um, if you are doing an unguided, uh, you do have to meet with a climbing ranger briefly. Um, they kind of go over some very, very basic stuffs, but they do not test you on that. Um, I don't know if they're, if they would pull your permit, if they do not think that you are, if you're going to get yourself in danger. Um, but to my knowledge, they do not have any sort of a skills test. Um, you know, the climbing rangers have a, you know, they have a self-interest in not having to deal with any rescues because it takes a lot 
it takes a lot of effort on their time and it also puts them at a lot of risk. Um, there was actually a climbing ranger who died on Rainier who fell during a, uh, a rescue. Um, I want to say it was about five or six years ago. Um, and actually on the second time I was on Rainier, when I was coming down, I actually found an unrelated person and ended up actually helping with the rescue. Um, this was on the snow slope. It was just somebody that was kind of sledding, but you know, they still had to climb and call in one of the climbing rangers down and, you know, start a rescue. And we had to have a helicopter bring her out because she had a oh, broken wow. ankle. So. And she was by herself. She was with a couple friends, but they were on the lower slopes, the stuff that was not glaciated and they were just sledding. Um, it's, you know, you can go up there and kind of butt sled anytime you want year round. Um, and she just kind of jammed her ankle bad enough and actually um, broke or dislocated her ankle. Man. So I had to help with that one. Yeah, that's always the scary thing doesn't, about doesn't hiking good. so far into the mountains is that you're, you know, a broken ankle or any kind of body part broken away from a, a rescue. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Especially if it's something that's lower, um, you know, lower extremities, your, your feet, your legs. Um, Cause it really makes self-rescue very difficult. Um, luckily that one there, people have, you know, it's a very popular route. There is lots of people that were going by. I just happened to be going by just after it happened. Um, I had a, a rescue beacon and I had enough, um, rescue skills to kind of help her help stabilize the foot and try to kind of carry her down. We, we carried her down to a point where we were at the edge of the snow, right between where the, the snow ends and the, the dirt and the trail begins. And we found a, a place that was flat enough to have them bring in a helicopter. And then the, the climbing ranger was called down. Um, so we ended up having radio support and everything. So that was actually a good place to have that happen. Uh, there's definitely much, much more remote places out there for, for incidents like that. To gotcha. So on the uh, returns mandatory, I talk a lot about just kind of the respect for the mountains. Um, I know I've done, I did the little bear to Blanca traverse by myself, but you know, a more dangerous situation was earlier that year when I got caught in a whiteout on quandary, you know, and it's like, most people think, you know, quandary, you know, super easy, go up, go down type thing. But really, when the mountains kind of show off its power, um, it doesn't take long to respect it. Do you have like any kind of a story where you were maybe a little bit too cocky and you kind of the mountain taught you about that side? Actually, I got a pretty good one. Um, that first peak I was talking about doing was my, you know, uh, my first big mountain in my adult life was uh, Gannett up in Wyoming back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's also a fairly remote peak. It's about 25 miles in, 25 miles out. You have to go over uh, the route I did. You have to go over pretty high pass in between. Um, and um, you get there, and it's actually a fairly glaciated peak, although not anywhere as bad as... Um, Rainier for crevasses, but there are a couple areas where there's crevasses. Um, there is a Bergstrand, which is where the uh, the lower glacier separates from the upper snow field that's permanent, um, and you have to cross that um, in bad years. Um, that can actually be pretty difficult because it's, you know, essentially a snow wall that you have to try to get up somehow, either carving some way through it so that it's at a low enough angle to climb or wow. something. Um, so I. So I did that one and, you know, I kind of thought I was, you know, I I thought I knew what I was doing. Definitely kind of got taught a lot of lessons. So uh, everything was going swimmingly on the way in, uh, backpacked 20 some odd miles in the first day, got to the base, um, met up with a couple other people that were sitting there and I was doing it solo. A couple guys there were kind of old school guys who had, uh, brought in all their stuff with a pack, uh, pack animal, I think the pack horse or something like that. So, you know, I, I, I was kind of looking at all these guys. And I'm like, well, I just hauled everything in myself. I'll probably be able to be quicker than these guys and talking to them. They all wanted to kind of leave like midnight. I'm like, I don't really want to get up that early. So 
um, I decided to start at what I thought was a more standard time of 4 a.m. And I actually was the first one on the upper mountain. Um, they all took these kind of very circuitous routes kind of around the basin. I just kind of went straight through this boulder field. Um, uh, if you've done Long's Peak, uh, the boulder field on Long's, just imagine it being maybe twice, two or three times as big. Um, and actually made it up to the snow before anybody else did. So I was thinking I was doing really well, climbed up everything, had perfect snow conditions, um, actually was doing it at microspikes, um, and got up to the summit and it was a beautiful day. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, I, I was tired cause I'd hiked in the day before, um, I was tired from waking up so early and climbing up there. So I just kind of laid down, took a little bit of a nap. Uh, woke up about an hour later and I was in a electrical storm cloud, couldn't see anything anymore. And I got woken up and it took me a second to realize why I was woken up. Um, but the rocks around me started buzzing with electrical energy and actually kind of sounded like beehives. Um, you know, it was starting to sleet on me. So I kind of packed up everything really quick and I got down low as fast as possible. Um, past a couple of those same groups who were kind of retreating. Um, you know, got down without incident, but definitely made me think twice about, you know, making sure that, you know, my weather forecasts are really dialed because I kind of went in there without a weather forecast, you know, making sure I really have the equipment I need. You know, in that case, I was fine, but it, if I'd been a little bit later in the season or, you know, that Bergstrand would have been, you know, collapsed, the snow bridge across the Bergstrand was collapsed, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that with micro spikes. Um, or if, you know, maybe even earlier in the season, if the snow was harder, um, also might've been difficult because the snow would have been much more firm and micro spikes might not have cut it. So, you know, definitely got really lucky with that one and could have ended up pretty badly and didn't. So I tried to learn from that and that's kind of what set me along my path of trying to, you know, bring myself I have a saying that I like to say that you should bring yourself up to the challenge instead of bring the challenge down to you. Um, and I think, you know, the education and, and getting that experience before doing something really difficult um, is bringing yourself up to the mountain where, you know, just hiring a guide or relying on, you know, other people to, to keep you from screwing up is kind of bringing the mountain down to you. So not that hiring a guide is a bad idea. Please do that if, if you know, you or any of the listeners are wanting a guide. But, um, you know, don't go in unprepared and just expect somebody else is going to bail yeah, you I out. Think, you know, there's kind of a parallel to be seen in the real world, too. You know, um, you, know you could learn things from other people and um, there's also learning things for yourself you know um i think that's just a mature thing to do um i've noticed um that you're you're really good about studying um you know just speaking with you uh for the short amount of time before we went up and did massive you know you were sending me the the shading charts from the avalanche center uh you knew about the weather the wind i mean you i could tell that you've really not only spent a lot of time on the mountain but like learn the lessons that you need to learn yeah i mean um definitely some of that was kind of learned from you know failures uh first time i tried to do long's peak um i tried to do it back in 2010 as an adult and um got up to the uh the little stone hut right at the keyhole and I could barely stand up in the keyhole because the winds were so bad. Um, like they were blowing me over when we were hiking out um, that morning. Um, so in, I just hadn't checked the weather. And so I got back down, I look at the weather and they were talking about, you know, 100 mile an hour gusts, you know, absolutely awful wind conditions. And I'm like, I shouldn't have even been up there. Luckily, I didn't, I wasn't um, stupid enough or novice enough at the time to try to push forward, even though the, the weather was bad. Um, you know, and I, some of that was kind of learned through some hard knocks. Some of that was just learned through reading. Um, 
I do try to, you know, learn techniques by, you know, by book and then just try to take it out in, you know, really easy situations to go practice, you know, learn how to practice and cramponing on, you know, lower angle snow slopes up in Rocky Mountain National Park than trying to go learn, learn it on or near when, you know, you have much higher risks. Um, and a lot of mountaineering is just learning how to mitigate risks. Um, you know, you just, you're up there to go have a good time. You're not up there to get hurt. And so, you know, making sure you check the weather, making sure you understand the route, making sure you do all the logistics part before you really sets you up well when you're actually up there, you know, exactly where you're supposed to be, you know, if there's going to be any turns, uh, you know, which, you know, ridges you're kind of climbing, you know, nowadays with cell phones, you kind of have a map or some sort of uh, something uh, in your phone so that you kind of know where you're at. Um, You know, also knowing how to read a paper map. Um, You know, I know how to read a paper map really well. Um, but it doesn't do a whole lot when you're just in really dense trees. Um, once you get above tree line, you can kind of see where you're at. You, it's much easier to kind of tell where you are. Um, but, you know, if you have bad weather, you're not going to be able to see much on a paper map where nowadays with, you know, a topo map on your phone, you can tell exactly where you are in a whiteout and be able to get off safely. So, you know, some people downplay phones and and that kind of stuff saying that they're unreliable yeah you shouldn't have that as your only option you should know where you are kind of in your head but it'll save your bacon if you're up there and you get in a whiteout condition and you get turned around so did you uh were you always into winter 14ers or was that something that you kind of had to build your confidence up on Well, so when I actually started doing a lot of the 14ers, um, I didn't start till kind of around August, um, the first year I was climbing. So, you know, it was nice and dry August, September, October started getting a little snow, did um, Harvard just after the first kind of big snowstorm of the year. There was, you know, kind of ankle deep snow, um, you know, just, just enough that it kind of lets you slip in and bites your ankles um, when you're hiking on you know kind of scrambling on rocks um and then i actually did seven or eight winter 14ers that first winter just because i wanted to go climbing and uh we actually had a pretty avalanche safe year um that year so uh, for the most part there wasn't a lot of issues some years uh like this year so far the snowpack isn't great it's very touchy um so I, that year I was able to do stuff. I was also doing ones that I thought were pretty avalanche safe, um, you know, checking the route. Um, I don't think Caltopo was around then and Caltopo has a great slope shading tool that really helps you visualize uh, the angles. Um, you'd have to use a, a scale to figure out your slope angle before that on a topo map, um, which you can do. It's just not as easy and clean as the Caltopo slope angle shading gotcha. so yeah i know i picked up on your little trick of cutting the hole in your mask um it's stuff like that i think that are the most important to learn in uh winter you know i can't tell you how many people i've passed on the trail who gave up on on their water for the day because the end of it froze and i you know in the most respectful way i just tell them to take the mouthpiece off and you know kind of chomp the ice away and then so you can free the lineup and staying hydrated to me is probably the thing that i focus on the most i drink a lot of water um so yeah little little tiny changes like that in your gear are super super important but um do you have any other yeah, i mean in the winter definitely i was just gonna say do you Sorry, have any other weird little tinkerings that you like <laughs> tinkering tips you have? <laughs> um, so, you know, you're talking about the, the, the water. Uh, one of the things that I thought's really nice is if you've got a really small day pack with water, um, you can actually kind of throw that underneath your jacket. Um, you know, so you've got your base layer, you put your backpack on, 
you know, if it's a smaller one with like just a water bladder and then you put your jacket and everything over that. And then everything is kind of close to your body heat. You don't have to worry about your, your hose freezing. You don't have to worry about your hose getting kind of off the, the back of you. Um, you know, cause it's kind of all tucked in there by your shoulder. It's easy to grab. Um, so if it's really windy or really cold and it's a shorter trip or I'm not bringing as much gear, um, you know, like a short thir- 13 or something like that, I'll do that. Um, if it's one that's longer, like doing massive the other day, um, you know, I was bringing a couple more layers, a couple more food, uh, more water, stuff like that. That all wasn't going to really fit into a smaller pack. Um, and even if it did, um, might not fit underneath my jackets. So, um, you know, just lots of layers is the best thing. Cause then you're just kind of switching back and forth. You really don't want to be sweating when you're in the winter. Cause as soon as you, as soon as you start getting your, your base layer wet or any of that sort of stuff wet, um, you can't really take off a wind or, uh, or a shell layer without, uh, flash freezing. Um, so, you know, making sure you have your layers, making sure you take the time to switch out if you get a little too hot. Also, if you start getting too cold, um, you know, just being able to switch on another layer real quick and, and kind of keep yourself, um, you know, in that little happy zone. So that way you're, you're not sweating and, but you're also not chilling yourself and causing yourself to potentially go into hypothermia. Um, you know, I think most people around Colorado understand layering, but I think when you have people who maybe aren't, aren't as experienced with dealing with uh, cold weather, they, they might not understand that, um, oh, you don't just throw on a jacket and call it good. Cause if you just have a t-shirt underneath that, you're kind of going between potentially too hot and way yeah, too I, cold. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy to see the influence of, you know, social media of spots like a uh, sky pond. Because uh, my girlfriend and I just did that over the weekend. Got up at uh, 2 o'clock, left here at 2.30, got there right around 5.45. Um, but on the way down, we were seeing all kinds of people, you know, with cotton layers and, um, you know, basically yoga pants. <laughs> um, it's just, it's crazy to yeah. see people um, obviously knowing about it but that's about it, you know, like show up at the trailhead and, and try it, <laughs> which I'm sure, which I'm sure they learned a lot of lessons yeah. that day. I wasn't there to, you know, be the police of, you can't wear that. You're, you know, but it's just like, Oh my gosh, I cannot <laughs> believe you thought that would work. Well, in some situations it probably works. Okay. Cause I mean, if it's still in the trees you know, the weather's decent. They might not know any better, but if they go up there and they're above tree line or, uh, you know, it's snowing or, you know, gusting really windy, they're going to find out real quick that they're not prepared enough. Um, so, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I've got for good tips. Um, I always bring, uh, my self-made wag bag, uh, especially, uh, you know, when I'm, going above a tree line because a lot of times it's kind of hard to dig cat holes and it's not really a nice thing to go poo and hide it under a rock that somebody else is going to find and and it's also just not going to degrade very fast at that altitude um so you know i've got my little um black doggy poo bags and bring all that stuff up there and it's uh it definitely it's good for leave no trace um you know and then you can just yeah. kind of take care of stuff. Um, I don't know. That's a pet peeve of mine that I think a lot of people, they go up there and they just think they can just hide under a rock. And, you know, I've in, in the really, in the more remote places, it's probably not an issue um, as much, but in places where there's a lot of use, um, if there's five, 10 people trying to do that every day, um, there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of waste yeah, really fast. Is. So definitely, uh, you know, think people don't think about that kind of stuff because, you know, in modern life, there's always a bathroom nearby, you know, it's not a big issue or they think they can always make it back to the trailhead, but you're going on a 15 mile hike. Yeah. You're probably not going to be able to do that. 
some people might, but, um, you know, finding really good snacks. <laughs> I know that's silly, but you're so much happier when you got something that you really like. Um, you know, if you're just bringing along food because you think that, you know, oh, I should have these power bars or something like that. I'm not sure if you ever remember those old power bars. They were awful. You know, cliff bars are better. Um, but, you know, finding whatever, you know, is your jam. Uh, my wife found these things over at Trader Joe's called power berries. Um, it's chocolate crack and they're amazing. Um, so that's kind of my go-to. But, I mean, I, I bring other food in that too. It's not just straight sugar, but, um, you know, finding whatever, uh, whatever makes you happy is, uh, is a big, I found that I help. really like bananas when it's cold. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but somehow in my mind, bananas taste different when they're like basically frozen. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, uh, bananas do not peel very well when they're cold, though. I found that out. So you might want to. I've always pre peeled. Oh, that's an expert tip cold. right there. I also like them. Um, yeah. If they get too cold, the peel kind of half freezes. So you pull it off, and just like the outside of the peel comes off, but the exactly. inside of the peel sticks to the banana um, still. I, so. I like um, carrying toilet paper um, like off the roll, like kind of like wrapped around my hand and then um, inside a Ziploc to keep it waterproof. Um, I found, I found that the wet wipes are really nice yep. when they're not frozen, <laughs> but, um, I... and they freeze yeah. pretty well in, in the winter. So that's kind of, uh, there's not really a good way to avoid them from freezing other than maybe keeping them inside your jacket, but you know, it's kind of annoying to try to yeah. keep them inside your jacket. So I don't know, you can kind of maybe position the you know, your little toiletry kit with the toilet paper and the doggy bags and the wet wipes kind of closer to your back and maybe it'll stay warmer or closer to your yeah. water bladder and it'll stay warmer. Um, but I haven't really, I haven't figured no, out a good way to keep those I think those it warm. is. That's something I need to figure out because I feel like when I use toilet paper, it's almost like playing Russian roulette with um, like, am I going to shave or not? <laughs> you know what I mean? With the uh, with, uh, wet wipes, it's like, Oh, yeah. Guaranteed clean and good to go. <laughs> definitely, definitely, I'll always feel feel good after that. Um, you know, and, and there's no really good way to figure out if you're going to have, uh, you know, if you're going to have to use them or not. So it's always just a good idea just to bring them with you. So my my little toiletry bag always comes on me with every hike. Um, you know, even short stuff. I just, I kind of have it all in a little like Ziploc baggie and that just goes in my backpack every single time. Um, there's always too much toilet paper and stuff in there and that's fine. It's a little extra weight, but you know, unless I'm going backpacking somewhere really remote, the couple extra ounces on a 10 mile day isn't an issue. So I do have one last question and it's semi hiking related, but semi personal. Um, I okay. I found that uh, when I got super focused on the 14ers and checking them off, um, things at home started getting neglected, um, like help around the house, just kind of my excuse was that I was tired. And I don't know, there's something about mentally, when I was first started, I was like justified it in my head to be you know i climbed a mountain so therefore i get to be lazy but i started realizing um keep both sides you know my personal life and my hiking life kind of balanced um i know you're married do you have any tips on you know making kind of both worlds work well i'm only more recently married i actually finished the four tenors before i got married um but um you know and, and my house was actually fairly neglected while i was doing the 14ers uh didn't do a whole lot of house projects um you know kind of was just my place that i lived on the weekdays and i just kind of went hike, hiking on the weekends um I've, i have definitely had to try to get a better balance between the two 
And part of that is, you know, if I know that I'm going to have a lot of stuff to do, um, you know, the next week around the house or whatever, um, or, you know, for work or whatever it is, I just won't be able to push myself quite as far or, or as hard. Um, or, you know, I try to get stuff taken care of before I do the trip. So if I know I'm going to be going on a trip, probably getting back late, you know, taking care of whatever I need to do to make the house, you know, presentable, you know, before I go on the trip is, is nice. Um, you know, you're always going to be kind of tired when you get back from trips and, um, you know, jet lagged or whatever. Um, trying to keep up on your sleep so that you're not sleep deprived is really key. Um, you know, making sure you get enough sleep during the week. So that way, when you are pushing yourself, you get back, you know, you're gonna be sore, you're gonna be tired, but you're not exhausted. Um, because you were, you know, kind of already low on sleep before you even went on the trip. Um, so that's kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the key for me is, you know, if there's certain things that I know I'm going to come back to, I just get them done before I go. And it's nothing I'm perfect at, but I'm definitely getting a lot better at it. Um, yeah, that was just one thing that really bugged me, you know, because I've it's always been a pet peeve of mine when I see people, you know, you see people claim a certain religion and then act a certain way. So I feel like when I'm blessed to see what I see on my hikes and I'm going back into the, you know, real world, <laughs> going back to work, uh, I, I feel like an asshole when I'm I'm the jerk. You know, I feel like I haven't been learning what I need to learn from those mountain experiences. Well, I don't know. I find them as I tend to be a lot calmer and happier after having a a nice long day, you know, get get lots of exercise, kind of get out some stress or whatever else was kind of going on, kind of come back with a little bit of a reset and, you know, just kind of keep going with that reset and with that, you know, maybe better mental state of mind, you know, you realize when you're up there that so many things that might've mattered or been problematic during the week are kind of small and insignificant when it comes down to things. And, um, you know, just kind of try to carry it through. I'm not saying everything is small and insignificant, but, you know, fighting with fighting over, um, you know, who, who cleans up the dishes, you know, just go throw a couple extra dishes in the dishwasher, even if they're not yours. I don't know. I'm trying to just think of something small. Um, but just trying to, to take that, you know, mental attitude of, you know, little things might not matter so much, even though we kind of make a big deal out of them and kind of just let that progress through the week. And if you start feeling upset over little things maybe just try to reset yourself or go out for a hike and you know do it that way oh well i really appreciate you joining me and um i feel like there's a lot more that i want to ask you but i also (laughs) should probably start doing some of those things i was just talking about like dishes and (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm happy to we to do another talk maybe a little bit later. I can talk about some of uh, you know some of the other international stuff I've gotten to do, and um, I don't know. I've got a couple other learned lessons I could maybe talk about too. If you, oh yeah, if that's what no, you'd like to hear. The one thing I will so. mention about some of your Europe photos, those goats are so dope looking. <laughs> Yeah, um, I got lucky. I got to see those ibexes on uh, two of the peaks I did, um, and actually got pretty close up to them the, the second time. And they're pretty pretty calm, but yeah, I mean their horns are massive. Uh, so um, definitely was a, a treat to see them both times. Um, and I'd love to go back there and now that I got a little bit better camera and maybe get a couple better photos because those yeah. are all just cell phone Yeah, definitely pictures. next time I talk to you, I'd like to hear about, you know, at least Blanc, Mount Blanc. Um, and 
Yeah, mom. Unfortunately, you can't actually do it the way I did it anymore because of uh, change in regulations. But uh, I can <coughs> talk about the route and. Oh, you're good. Some, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> some of the uh, some of the differences I was seeing between um, you know climbing in the USA gotcha. and climbing over in Europe. So. Alrighty, man. Well. Uh... Yeah, thanks again for joining me and uh you survived the lack of structure. <laughs> yeah, no problem, Mike. Uh yeah, man. You glad too. to talk and uh, hope you have a good night. Bye.